So welcome back to Oh Comrade, Where Art Thou? Uh, as always, I'm Alex. And this is Andrew. And today's episode, you know, we've, we've had a little bit of a hiatus, and in that time, <laughs> a lot has changed. Uh, I mean, and, when I, and when I say a lot, I mean, I'm, I'm referencing the protests that have, that have begun after um, George Floyd's death, um, Breonna Taylor, you know, all of these, all of these, um, all of these um, black Americans, right, who've been, who've been killed at the hands of the police. And that's unleashed a torrent of protests uh, throughout the United States uh, in and a torrent of protests that like we haven't really seen before, uh, at least, you know, recently. And I think the question on everybody's mind is like, well, what is going to happen next? Right. Like what's like, are there going to be any changes from this? Because, I mean, we've seen protests before. Right. I mean, there were protests after Eric Garner's death. There were protests after um, uh, Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, there were, you know, there was a lot of debate and, and protest and, um, you know, arguments about this country's history, about what it, you know, what that history means, uh, not only to the people who, you know, lived it, but the, to the people living it now and what it means to our future after Charlottesville, uh, after, you know, Colin Kaepernick started taking the knee. And so, and, and when those things, when those earlier things happened, Right. We didn't really see any sort of major systemic change. Uh, and now that seems to be, you know, much different, like in Minneapolis, where um, where, the, where this protest movement started. You know, you have the city council talking about embracing the defund the police movement uh, here, like in Denver, where I live. Um, there's been. Um, I don't think it's been signed into law yet, but there's a bill making its way through the legislative process, which would, you know, dr I shouldn't say dramatically, but like would limit um, would limit qualified immunity uh, for law enforcement officers. That, uh, which, Alex, when you say Denver, do you mean Denver, the city or Denver as in Colorado State Capitol? Would this be for Denver cops or for all cops in Colorado? My understanding is it's that, yeah, I should have been a little bit more specific because uh, Denver's our, you is know, it, capital the, is it the state city. I think state it's the state level. Yeah, okay. it's state level. Um, I, 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 they just like they recently watered it down or like changed it sort of dramatically from what it's going to be. But I mean, I think the general gist of it is a reduction in qualified immunity, um, more stringent regulations on body cams, uh, more stringent reporting on. I think they have to start reporting if they if they even draw their firearm, let alone discharge it. So, you know, we're seeing these things happen. Um, I, you know, I haven't been following the news as much today and, and yesterday because we were, you know, doing some family stuff. But I saw that there was a man killed uh, in Atlanta. I don't know if you've seen this, Andrew. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, an, another black man killed um, by the at the hands of the police. And I don't know the details. And so I don't really want to speculate on what I don't know much about. But, you know. I know that that has started protests as well, and I and I believe that Atlanta's chief of police has resigned. Yes, that's this. correct. Okay, so you know all of this is going on. Um, you have a lot of you know you have a lot of opposition to the current power structure going on in American streets right now. You have you know violence on behalf of the government against its own citizens. You know in cities across the United States. I think most dramatically in Washington D.C. When you had peaceful protesters cleared out of Lafayette Square, so Trump could walk over to—is it St. John's or is it St. Mark's Episcopal Church? St. John's. 
St. John's. Okay, over to St. John's Episcopal Church for his, you know, Bible photo op, you know, something that is extremely unprecedented in American history. I mean, the government's used violence against its citizens many, many times, but I don't want to like, I don't want to give that impression, but that, you know, that a president would do something like this, right? Like a president would seemingly directly order this kind of action uh, is extremely rare. I mean, I don't want to say that it's never happened before because I just don't know enough to, to verify that, but it's certainly not within, I think, the norm of what Americans would expect. And so, you know, again, like the, the question that we want to try and give you some insight on, I don't know if we can answer it, but at least give you some insight on is, you know, is this going to lead to any sort of change? And, you know, what does that even mean? You know, what sort of what sort of change and, you know, what are the obstacles that America that the majority of Americans now, I think, which want I don't know if they necessarily want police reform, but like a majority of Americans think that um, race is a problem in policing, which in itself, I think, is quite dramatic that we've seen that sort of a sea change in public opinion in the past two weeks. But, you know, what is that going to mean going forward? And is it going to last? I think that's actually really the biggest question on everyone's minds. Is is this a flash in the pan uh, or is something being built before our very eyes that's going to dramatically change the way that we think about race in this country, that we think about policing uh, and that we think about so many other things? Uh, so, you know, since this is a Russia and Ukraine themed podcast, you know, Ukraine, I think, offers us a, a good example to look at because uh, Ukraine has had several revolutions. Um, you know, first there was the Orange Revolution uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, and then there was the, the one again in 2014, which, you know, swept out the president and led to Russia seizing Crimea and, you know, the destabilization of eastern Ukraine. And so, we're going to be looking at those at that Ukraine's experience to see, you know, what lessons it can sort of offer the United States going forward. Uh, so I think to begin, like it, it might be good just to give some historical, uh, you know, a bit of like historical context. And so um, we'll, we'll and we'll start at the, you know, Ukraine's history as an independent country after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, you know, Ukraine emerges from the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, its politics is, you know, it really hasn't had any political structures of its own. Right. I mean, it has brief sort of flashes of independence, like during the revolutionary period, but, you know, never really anything permanent. And so there's, you know, a sort of a major challenge to build a new political order in Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, that that I think political order and that new political system is built on a promise. Right. And that promise is that Ukraine is going to, you know, fulfill its historical destiny and join the, you know, European community of nations. And I think for a lot of Ukrainians, what this means is a shift away from Russia, you know, towards the European Union, you know, joining the European Union, joining these sort of economic, you know, treaties with Europe and, you know, more fully integrating itself into Europe. Uh, and that, you know, happens throughout the 90s. There's moves to to do that. Um but at the same time, you know, Ukraine faces the, a lot of like the problems that we said that Russia had, right? Like economic collapse, rampant inflation, uh, corruption, 
you know, all these sorts of issues. But I think like the, the thing to remember here is like the promise remains the same sort of throughout this. Um, and that's that, you know, Ukraine is going to become a part of Europe. And, and that's the promise. And that's, I think, the image that Ukrainians start to form in their heads is that, you know, we are a part of the European community of nations. And like this is a part of our of our destiny. And so, you know, the question then becomes like, well, what you know, what goes wrong? Right. <laughs> how does this not happen? Uh, you know, how does this not happen back in the 90s, right? Like when Poland, the Czech Republic, uh, Latvia, Estonia, right? All these other, um, well, Latvia and Estonia and um, Lithuania are former Soviet, you know, uh, Union um, countries. They joined the European Union, you know, Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary. These are all like what we would call Eastern Bloc countries. Uh, they joined the European Union and, you know, Ukraine misses out. Uh, and, I, and I think there's, you know, a few reasons for that. Um, you know, one is that Ukraine has much closer ties to Russia than these other countries do. Right. And that's sort of the, the main fissure within Ukrainian society is you have sort of the eastern part of the country, which is more Russian speaking, um, which is more, you know, identifies more with the Russian with Russia. Right. And then there's the the western part of the country which identifies more with europe and it's not like a purely even split but that i think gives you a sense of what's going on um but at the same time like ukraine has the a problem that we discussed with russia and that's it has an oligarchs problem right so like you, you know ukraine goes through a very similar process that russia does where the state-owned industries most of the major industries in ukraine are taken over by very, you know, men who become extremely wealthy and who have a very outsized role on politics. And I mean, there, there's a few reasons for that, right? I mean, if you're uh, at this time, it's President Kuchma, um, you know, if you're Kuchma, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's it's politically expedient for you to have these sort of powerful men in your corner. Right. Even though it, it, it may lead to more corruption. Right. Even though it might not be the best thing for your economy, like politically, it makes sense for you. And so I think Europe is always sort of hesitant in looking at Ukraine for, you know, a few reasons. I mean, again, one is the, the closeness to Russia. One is the, the closeness of the oligarchs to the political system. Um, and so the the sort of you know, Ukraine joining the European Union doesn't really seem to happen. Right. Right. Uh, but there's this there's a scandal uh, in Ukrainian politics, uh, as there, you know, as there usually always seems to be. But, <laughs> in, you know, this particular scandal, at least in the Western world, I don't know if they refer to it this way in Ukraine, but in the Western world, it becomes known as Kuchmagate. Uh, and so, you know, Kuchmagate is the president Kuchma, he's videotaped or not videotaped, but, you know, audio recorded by one. I think it's one of his bodyguards, but he's recorded talking about taking all sorts of kickbacks, you know, intimidating uh, rivals. Um, the, you know, the particularly like damning part for him is he's talking about uh, an opposition journalist uh, and this opposition journalist. And this was never like proved he was never convicted of anything. But this opposition journalist was found beheaded in a forest outside of Kiev. Jesus. Yeah. And so um, what is that? Is that like all those? Well, I mean, I guess it's a little more obvious. But 
I just I think of like all the you know all the journalists that just happened to accidentally uh, you know fall off their balconies in in Russia. Oh right, during <laughs> COVID and the doctors too. Yeah, I mean it's something along those lines. And and I mean again, they never convicted Kuchma of anything, but I mean it's heavily implied in these recordings that you know he doesn't like this journalist and he wants him right. to go away. I mean I, I actually think what he what he says in the in the tapes is that like he wants the journalist detained and like sent to Chechnya in Russia, you know, where there's, you know, an so, ongoing. So they got him on tape pretty much literally going, will someone rid me of this meddlesome journalist? Like, <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, not like I don't think he uses the words murder. Um, right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's bad. You know, I mean, it's it's bad. And so, you know, his his political future is. Um, I guess in Ukrainian it might be called like the cassette scan- the cassette scandal, mm-hmm. but <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, it you know this leads to protests. Um, this leads to protests in Kiev. You know, it leads to um, you know it leads to a falling out of of Kuchma support, uh, and you know it really leaves open a new you know a new window. Um, a new opportunity in Ukrainian politics, um, you know, because before, I mean, as you know, as we said, like politics in, in Ukraine was so very heavily structured around the oligarchs. Mm-hmm. And at this moment, right, this is when uh, Viktor Yushchenko um, comes to, you know, comes to the scene. Um, so, you know, Yushchenko is, um, I think he's like the third president of Ukraine, second, no, yeah, he's the third president of Ukraine, because Kravchuk would have been first, then Kuchma. So then, you know, this leaves an opening for for Viktor Yushchenko. And what's interesting about him, right, is he doesn't really come from the, he doesn't really come from this old power structure, right? Like he, he doesn't know the, he's not really connected to the oligarchs. You know, he's not sort of connected with Eastern Ukraine, uh, where a lot of the, you know, previous power structure had been located. And this is sort of an opportunity for him. And, and he openly, you know, campaigns on moving, you know, Ukraine into Europe, right? And, fi- you know, fighting corruption, fighting the power of the oligarchs. And so he becomes the, you know, presidential candidate as sort of like, I guess what you could call like the reform bloc. And then Yanukovych, who was the, pre, you know, we'll get back to Yanukovych, but he's the later, we'll talk about him more later, but, you know, he's, he's from the East, right? And, mm-hmm. and he sort of represents more of like the older order. And so he and Yushchenko and um, Yanukovych square off in the election and most of the polling, and this is going to, you know, bring up, I think, nightmares of 2016 for a lot of, <laughs> but like most of the polling shows that Yushchenko is, is ahead throughout the election. Uh, and I think that this, you know, this scares a lot of people, uh, and especially scares the Russians, right? Because Yanukovych is their candidate, not right. Yushchenko, because Yanukovych wants to keep Ukraine more closely aligned to Russia. And so, um, you know, Yushchenko all of a sudden, like, you know, has to leave Ukraine. He goes to Vienna, to Austria. Uh, he's having a health emergency, and it turns out that he was poisoned. Like, I don't know if you've maybe you've seen images of him. He's the, the guy whose face is all scarred. Uh, yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't seen him. OK. Um, yeah, I mean, if you Google like Victor Yushchenko, you'll see, you know, the photos of, of, the, of the scarring on his face. And so it turns out that he was poisoned. OK. 
And but you know he survives, right? Jesus. He survives the poisoning. Uh, I mean, I think obviously this you know boosts his campaign. You know, he comes back and he's leading in the polls, uh, and. Um, he and Yanukovych win, like, so in the Ukrainian process, right, there's like an initial first round, and if no one gets an outright majority, they go to a second round. Mm-hmm. So he and the, or the top two go to a second round. So Yushchenko finishes number one. You know, Yanukovych is behind him. Uh, and then there's a bunch of other candidates that, you know, get, a, you know, a couple percentage points. Um, and they're, and they're going to the second round. So Yushinka and Yanukovych move on to the second round. And it looks like Yushinka should win, right? He should be picking, he's picking up the votes of most of the people whose candidates have now been eliminated. And it looks like he's going to win. Uh, well, it turns out that he doesn't win. Uh, <laughs> uh it's Yanukovych that wins. And this sets off a, this sets off a huge scandal in Ukraine because I think it, it's also like revealed at that time that, you know, they falsified the election results. And so people take to the to the streets, especially in Kiev, and protest. And this is known as the Orange Revolution. You know, maybe you've heard of this this term before, uh, but this is the start of the Orange Revolution. You know, they're they're protesting, you know, not so much like a particular party or a, you know, a particular um like it's something like it's it's very spontaneous and it's very limited, I think, in the sense that it's it's limited to protesting these election results. Right. So Ukraine's Supreme Court steps in, annuls the results, orders a new election. This election, I think, you know, obviously attracts the attention of the EU and, and other Western observers. They come in. The election is deemed, you know, free and fair. And Yushinka wins, you know, as many predicted he should have the first time. And so he's, you know, now he becomes the president. Um, and I think this is a good moment to pause because, you know, now we have somebody uh, in Yushinka who comes to power uh, under a clear mandate of reform. Uh, you know, he, he's got, um, you know, he seemingly has the will and the ability to get this done. Uh, to move, you know, Ukraine more firmly into Europe to deal with these, you know, problems that Ukraine has faced for so long. But, you know, really he's, he's unable to deal with. And so we're going to, you know, pause, put the pause on Ukraine for a second and talk about, you know, what's been, what's been happening here in the United States and trying to, you know, get us to, you know, this moment of reform here. And so, I mean, to me, what's been like the most remarkable thing uh, you know, to see is that, is this is like, is how sustained these protests are. Right. Right. They're like, you have people going out day after day after day after day, like in the face of a pandemic of, of all things, right. And continuing to place pressure on, uh, on the power structure, on the, you know, on city governments, on state governments, on, on the federal government. And, you know, that to me is very, very remarkable. And, you know, what what leads to this moment? You know, I, I think that's a good question. And, and I, it's one that I don't know that we'll have the answer to for quite, you know, for another few years. I mean, I, I certainly think like it helps that you had uh, that like the coronavirus has really like laid bare for all to see a lot of inequality in the right. United States. Right. And like and how, you know, what life in the United States is really like. Uh, for for many of its citizens, 
So I think that's, you know, that's one element of this. I mean, I think the fact that you have so many viral videos now of these incidents uh, is also extremely powerful, right? Because without this sort of evidence, you know, we're left with uh, the word of, of police forces. And if, um, you know, like in the case of like George Floyd, in the case of uh, the like the that 70 something year old guy in Buffalo, right? Like we're seeing that what we're being told doesn't match up with what is what's happening. Right. And it's happening like in real time. You know, it's not like that. I don't know, at a trial two or three or four or five, however many months later, all this information comes out. Like it's happening in real time. Like we're learning that what's what's really going on isn't matching up with what we're being told almost instantly. I mean, I think that is extremely powerful. Uh, I mean, I think the other thing about these videos, too, that comes out is like I think for so many of us, you know, myself included, like our interactions with the police are, you know, relatively benign. Right. You know, like it, it's not something that we have to worry about. And so when it's it's harder to understand. Right. It's harder to, to be like, you know, to really comprehend what what. Um, like, you know, like what a black man would go through being stopped by the police. But then you see these videos, right? And it's almost like you're seeing the interaction with the police through their eyes. And, you know, that really, like, you can't look away from that. Right. You know, and like, you, you can't ignore and you can't, you can't like talk around that or, you know, say, oh, well, but this, you know, you can't do that anymore. Uh, so I think that's also like an extremely powerful moment uh, and at the same time, too, we, we've sort of been building to this, too. Like, I think that's another thing that I think gets lost, maybe doesn't get lost, but that is underappreciated in the narrative about these protests is like this has been going on for a long, long time. Right. I mean, decades, really centuries. Right. right. I mean, like we've been told again and again and again that this that the United States of America does not treat um does not treat um, black people with the same sort of dignity, respect um, that it does, you know, white people. Like we've known that for so long, yet we've been able to, you know, I don't know if sweep it under the rug is the right term, but turn our eyes to it. I think that's a better that's a better way to think about it. You know, turn our eyes to it. But when you have these videos in your face, like you can't turn your eyes anymore. You know, you re you really can't. And so I think. That in part is what is what's led us here. I mean, I think the other thing about it, you know, speaking of imagery is like when we think about how Colin Kaepernick was taking a knee, right, kneeling during the national anthem to protest um, police brutality and to protest how the police are treating, you know, um, treating black people in this country. And like, look at how George Floyd died, right, mm -hmm. like a knee to, you know, into his neck. Uh, and it, it just like in that moment, I think it made people so many people realize, you know, call, like he was right the whole time. Right. You know, uh, and, and for whatever reason, like probably because I didn't want to, but like I didn't want to see it. And, and now I can't, you know, I can't unsee it. And so we, we've come to this moment now where, you know, much like Ukraine in 2004, like there's a lot of energy 
right? There's a lot of people out there protesting, a lot of people out there demanding change. And so, like, the question is, like, well, what, you know, what is that change going to look like? And, and how do you go about actually bringing that about? Uh, and I mean, here, I think that it's good to think about, like, I mean, to me, I've always sort of thought about historical change and, and thinking historically is almost like a, like peeling, like the layers of an onion, you know, like you have like the core and then you have all these layers on top of it. And, and to me, like the question is how deep do you want to go? Right? Like how much stomach do you have? To, to keep digging down to the root of the problem. So if we go to uh, like Ukraine, for example, you know, the big problem in Ukraine, uh, a thing that strangles its politics, that strangles its economy, right, that sort of puts it more in Russia's orbit is is corruption, you know, on so many levels, whether that's the high levels down all the way to the lowest. Um, that's something that they've really struggled with. Um and so the question is, like, you know, that's like the root of the problem, right? So that's, you know, that's Ukraine here in the United States in this moment with the with the protest against the police. And again, like, it's not over yet. So I don't know, right. you know, if this movement's going to take a turn and go somewhere else or if it's going to sort of pick up new causes to make its own or start, you know, making new demands. But, I mean, in the meantime, there's, there's this um, – I mean, I think the core demand, right? Like if we really boil down to what that is, it's, it's essentially that the United States has a deeply racist history going back to, you know, it's, it's discovery. And I use discovery in, in, in air quotes by Europeans, right? I mean, it's sort of that simple and it's always been with us. Right. Well, I think you're kind of seeing that too, because this is, um, I mean, there is, you're seeing that kind of connection and the, uh, I guess, through line of racism is being uh, reflected in the fact that um, in these protests that are um, purportedly about police violence, right, and police brutality and over-policing, militarization of police – Basically, the way that we do policing in this country, one of the effects that you're seeing from that is the removal and um, the removal of statues and emblems honoring uh, the Confederacy and revisiting that narrative. Yeah, and and I guess like what I would say though about that is you know challenging that narrative and trying to make the United States a more equitable country and improving race relations is one thing, right? And tearing down statues is, is – I don't want to say it's something else. I mean it's part of that, but it doesn't take you all the way to where you need to go. Right, right. I'm just I saying – I guess is, is what my I, point I think, is. Yeah, I, I'm just saying that I think it's it, it's become quite clear that this is this is something more than just um, – you know, police stop killing people. <laughs> right? Yeah, like that, that, I, no, I definitely, the I definitely agree. roots of the issue are much deeper, and that um, if we're going to if we're going to address that, then we have to. We can't keep doing the um, the kind of uh, half-hearted 
attempts at reforms that we've seen in the past. And we've, we've talked a lot about how there's a lot that you can just kind of paper over and get away with when the system, generally speaking, uh, works, right? Like, and the economy is kicking around, right? Like you, we've, you said before, you can get away with a lot if you've got 3% unemployment, right? <laughs> so yeah, um, I think that is definitely playing a part in why something that, you know, we have seen before. We've seen, we've seen a, a black man get murdered by the police on camera. We've seen that before. And some... For some reason, this time it feels different. No, it does. I mean, I definitely agree that it feels different. Um, I mean, I guess like the, you know, the question is like, how deep do we want to go in addressing the core problem? Right. Right. Which is, you know, which is racism, um, which is the racist, you know, history of this country. Uh, because, you know, as you said, like this goes much deeper than policing. Uh, I mean, I think that's definitely something that, um, you know, maybe you're sort of average or casual observer of these protests is not, you know, comprehending or not perceiving is that this is much deeper than um, than policing. Right. Uh, and, you know, we, we're, we'll get to that. Um, well, I think so. I think I think that to, to just be clear, I think um, looking at the removal of uh, Confederate iconography is at the very least, it's an indication that we're actually open to having that discussion. And oh, yeah. It, I mean, I, right? like, I agree. Like, before, it's, it's a very I think it was step. always kind of, it was always kind of, we'll do what we can to kind of uh, address the current issues as they currently are existing in the way policing is done. But we don't want to have that. We don't want to have the the broader truth and reconciliation that um, you know has been has been had had elsewhere. Uh, we don't want to really get into the real discussion of the lasting impact of slavery and racism in this country. Mm-hmm. And this time it's different. Yeah. No. Definitely. Um... But, you know, again, like what what how deep this is going to go, I think that remains to be seen, you know, and so we're going to come back to that. Um, But I mean, now we sort of, I think, have an idea of, you know, what does it really take to propel change forward? And it's, you know, it's not just addressing, I guess, what you might call like uh, symptoms of the problem, right? Like it's addressing the core of the problem. And so if – like to go back to Yushenko, right, and, and why he – I might be mispronouncing it. It might be Yushenko. Let me, let me look here. Yeah, I think it's Yushenko. So to, you know, to go back to you know, like why does his administration fail, right? You know, why is he unable to deliver on you know, the, the tide of like a great promise? And, and really it's because I think he doesn't – like his administration fails to address – corruption within the government. Uh, and I mean, you know, corruption even among his own, like, you know, amongst his own supporters. Um, and I mean that, you know, really like Mars, um, 
mars his his administration and and he also has a lot of conflicts with you know yulia timoshenko who's um you know she was the she was the leader who was imprisoned by yanukovych uh, i don't know if you heard about this like she spent yeah, like three years in jail like something like that um you know she's she is the prime minister and yushenko yushenko is the president and be, you know one of the things that yushenko does is you know he makes it much more difficult for the president to rule without you know parliament and the prime minister on his side uh and so because you know he's never really able to agree with the other elements of his of his coalition right like particularly um Timoshenko, um you know they're they're not able to achieve any meaningful reform and and in the interim right like corruption continues um you know Yushchenko makes some i don't want to say like questionable decisions but like he he makes some decisions um that like really i think that he i think sees as solidifying a ukrainian national identity um you know like recognizing uh, like arguing that the the famine in the 30s um was genocide mm-hmm. right the whole of the more like right. bringing that to the forefront um i think the most i mean the most contra- controversial thing he does is he you know really he honors uh, stepan bandiera who's this uh ukrainian nationalist he led a he led uh, an army in western ukraine and he was someone who uh fought against the soviet union uh collaborated with the nazis <laughs> then turned against and fought the nazis um but you know had like there were lots of claims of anti-semitism too right, right. i mean like anti-semitism was something that sort of stains the legacy of bandera i mean amongst other things right and so he makes sort of all of these missteps but i mean the the big one is he doesn't address corruption and so things don't really get done uh, you know, he alienates enough Ukrainians um, with, you know, the sort of the weakness of his administration, uh, with, you know, some of the decisions that he makes regarding, you know, national policy. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, his opponent, right, um, Yanukovych is still out there. And I mean, I think the best way to think of about Yanukovych's block is it's sort of like what the Republican Party is now, right? Like it has right. a strong core of voters that are, you know, that we're never going to abandon it, uh, at least at that time. Whereas, you know, Yushchenko's block, like the more liberal oriented block, the pro-Europe block, it, it's a bunch of like, it's more like the Democratic Party. It's a bunch of, I don't want to say competing interests, but it's a much bigger tent, right? So it has a lot more constituent parts that it needs to keep happy um, in order for it to govern effectively. And it's just unable to do this. And so Yanukovych, uh, you know, takes over, right? He wins the, he wins, um, which election would have been? I think it was the 2010 election. Um, you know, he wins the, the, he wins the presidential election, um, which is deemed to be free and fair and takes over. And, you know, corruption continues unabated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in fact, in many ways, like it gets worse. Um, you know, he, he, Yanukovych moves against his opponents, right? He jails Timoshenko. He, um, and I mean, the other thing too is he adopts a much more pro-Russia platform. Uh, and he starts to move the country more towards Russia. And what's interesting about this, right, is, you know, the, all of you, all of Ukrainian history 
post nineteen you know ninety like post nineteen ninety one collapse of the Soviet Union is this idea of moving towards joining the European Union, right? Like fully integrating within Europe. And this never really changes. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't change with the first president, Kravchuk. It doesn't really change with Kuchma, the second president. I mean, Yushinka really comes to the forefront on the promise that he's going to move Ukraine into Europe. And Yanukovych comes along and in some ways, like he's trapped, right? Like he he's clearly Moscow's candidate, right? Like he needs Russia in his corner to stay in power. Because, uh, you know, they give him they give him money to prop up Ukraine's economy. They give him support. But at the same time, like he's facing he's facing this longstanding, you know, assumption that Ukraine is going to join the European Union. And so he can he continues to push Ukraine towards the European Union, at least on, you know, on the outside, it looks like that. Uh, and then, you know, it brings about the 2014 revolution is like maybe it was the day of or a couple days before, like he is on the verge, like literally on the verge of signing an, asso- an association agreement with the EU, right? A major, right. a major deal with the EU and he backs out. And it turns out that like, you know, he negotiated a, a huge loan from Russia to prop up, you know, Ukraine's economy, which he you know, greatly weakened by his own corruption. Mm-hmm. And I think like the first tranche of that loan arrived like a couple days before he, you know, he backs off signing the association agreement. And, and you know, that is that's huge. Right. I mean, and that's something that Ukrainians in their heads just cannot accept. Right. I mean, maybe, you know, it's one of those fascinating things. Right. Like something that we've that we've talked about um, earlier with with Americans and like, you know, we've because like here we've seen black men killed on tape before and nothing and nothing like this has happened before, like nothing like these protests have happened before. Um, you know, Ukrainians had seen corruption before. Right. I mean, they'd seen strong handed politicians before. Um, but, you know, what they were what they would not abide. Right. Is this movement towards Russia. And that's what brings out people to the Maidan. That starts the 2014 revolution mm-hmm. uh, that eventually sweeps Yanukovych from power. Um, and I, I mean, and I think too, like in talking about like parallels between now and you know Ukraine in 2014 and America now, what was remarkable to me, right, is you had people gathering on the Maidan, which is like Kiev's main square, like Independence Square, and you know they were being peaceful. And I, I, I generally believe, like, this is, I think, always one of the, the uh, fascinating things to me about protest, right, is, like, if you're a government, I mean, it, it like, if you we look throughout history, like, it takes a lot for you to be deposed, right? Like, right. I'm not saying more governments right. should be deposed. I'm just saying it takes a lot. And generally, like, when you let people protest, these things just kind of die out, you know, affecting real change is hard. But if you give people a spark or you give people a reason to really, you know, oppose you, they will. And in Ukraine's case, um, Yanukovych sends sends in the special forces like a, the, the Berkut, I think is it's called like, a, you know, sort of like a SWAT team type equivalent. Right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, highly specialized police. And they start opening fire. And they and they kill protesters. And from that moment on, like it's over like he lost the second that he decided to do that. 
Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, another interesting parallel to make here is like, you know, I don't think that we're going to see Trump like deposed. I don't. Right. Uh, mostly just I shouldn't say mostly, but I mean, one of the reasons is that we have an election coming up. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, it's things are not looking good for Trump in that election. But anyway, like, I, I you know, he lost, I think, a lot of support. And I don't think the polls have completely reflected this yet because they haven't come out yet. I, I could be wrong. But like, I think the second that he decided to have that Lafayette square photo, mm-hmm. you know, the, the sorry, the St. John's um, photo op like that was that was a huge that was a watershed moment for him. And, and, and in all the wrong in all the wrong ways. Right. Because he's he's lost like what sort what any what sort of moral component he had. If he had any at all, <laughs> it, it was gone then. Right. Right. And that's when I mean, and that's the other amazing thing, too, about political change and like regime collapse is they all seem to have it together until they don't. Right. Like it is always so sudden, like it's it never seems to be, at least in real time, like a slow drip. You know, or like that one straw that breaks the camel's back. It's like there's one moment where all of a sudden the people in the regime are like, whoa, wait a second. Like, I, I don't support this or like, hey, this isn't necessarily me. And, you know, in Ukraine's case, like right after Yanukovych starts using force, I think you see the parliament pass a law like banning the use of force or, you know, doing something like that. Uh, the, you know, all most of the officials uh, in his in his cabinet in his um, in his regime refuse to support him anymore right like they've lost that moral component and that was really the end of his presidency uh, and you know he flees to the east and then later into Russia and in which I'm assuming he's still there um, and you know here like we've seen something we've seen something similar right like we we've you know, Trump go down into the bunker. We've seen them, you know, assemble. He's inspecting it. <laughs> oh, of course. You know, you got to make sure that it's it, that the stock of Diet Coke and um, <laughs> fries is plentiful down there. But, you know, we, we've seen him do that, right? We've seen the fencing go up outside the White House. You know, we, we've seen the photo op. And, like, I think that he's I, he, I think he's lost a huge component of his moral support, Right. I mean, he he his bit like I think so many Americans were worried that like, you know, what's the military going to do in all of this? And I, and I think that we have at least some sort of an idea, which is at least now they are extremely hesitant to get involved in something like this. And for good reasons. Right. You know, and they don't and they don't want to be politicized, I think, in the way that Trump politicizes everything. You know, I think that they they don't want to do that, at least again for now. You know, who knows where this is going to go, but, you know, he's lost a huge component of his of his moral support. I mean, especially like this is somebody and I mean, Trump, who talks about how he's like the greatest military. Well, I mean, he's the greatest president ever in everything, but particularly in military affairs. Right. And like, you know, nobody loves the military more than him. I mean, I don't know, Andrew, it seems like a lifetime ago, but I don't remember generals like disagreeing with Obama in this way or, you know, George W. Bush or Reagan or really almost anybody. I I think like the last time that you you, that I can recall where you had such a discord between a 
between the military and the president was maybe when Truman fires MacArthur for suggesting yeah, MacArthur. China <laughs> and North Korea. So, you know, that that's pretty telling, right? So you know, so we, we got to that moment in Ukraine, right, twenty fourteen. And I think it's that's probably a good place to stop our narrative there. And, you know, the, the, the question too, you know, now becomes the United States, like, you know, what is this all going to mean? Um, and, uh, one thing too that I think, sorry, let me, you might have to edit this a little bit. Let me start over with this. Like, I, I think if Ukraine can tell us anything, and like this is something we talked about mm-hmm. before we started recording, it's that so much of of change, like political change, social change, whatever, even like revolutions, right? Like there's, there's, there's a mental component to it. And what I mean by that is like things have to change inside people's heads, right? right, Before they change in out in the real world. Um, and, and this sort of change can be, you know, gradual, like it can build up to something. It can be, you know, rather sudden, but that always seems to have to happen. And, you know, in Ukraine, like what fueled two revolutions, uh, post, you know, post Soviet revolutions? It was this idea that's been in the minds of, I think, many Ukrainians that like they are a European country, that they are not, you know, a part of like this greater Russian, you know, space, right? And every time there, the governments have, you know, seemingly tried to move against that, uh, they've, they've responded. Now, what does that mean in the United States? I'm not quite sure yet, but I mean, as we talked about, what to me is, is remarkable is that, I mean, not like, like, I don't want to say it's remarkable that people like have stopped being racist. Like you should never be a racist. (laughs) Um, I mean, but, like, no, no, I think it's, it is, uh, I mean, it, it, I think it can be considered pretty remarkable that people in this country are not racist sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, the, like, what, what is staggering to me is like how quickly we've seen a change, right? right? Like, you know, I don't, I don't want to like give, you know, I don't want everybody who's out there who's like, you know, says they're woke now or whatever term you want to use. Like, I don't want to like, <laughs> be giving that pat on the back and being like, yeah, you know, I'm not racist. You did the bare minimum. Yeah, congratulations. But like what's remarkable is how fast it's happened, right? right? Like this polling, like NASCAR is banning the the Confederate flag. Like if you ever would have told me that, you know, somehow NASCAR would take the opposite side of Trump during the culture wars, I probably would have told you you were insane, right? Like that's – you know, that really is remarkable. And so I, I think what we're seeing now, uh, part of what we're seeing now anyway, is like a realignment in people's thinking about, you know, about race in this country, at least temporarily. You know, like I don't like I don't want to say that, you know, we've turned some major corner and, you know, we're going to live in 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 greater harmony from now on. Like I, you know, American history shown that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's always it's always very hard to go against, you know, what's happened before. But I mean, I do think that we are seeing some sort of change in opinion about race in this country, which is which is remarkable. Um, You know, I don't want to like diminish that. But anyway, I think that in and of itself is is very, very important, because what happens next, I think, is going to is going to build is going to build on that 
that change in, in people's, you know, outlook, right? So like in some sense, there sort of has been a revolution, uh, in, in how people perceive things, right? But we have so much like further to go. Uh, and, and, and I don't just mean like defund the police or abolish the police or, you know, whatever, whatever movement, you know, whatever, like, uh, you know, wording for hashtag or yeah. Yeah. That you want to, that you want to adopt because I mean, I don't want to say that I don't want those things to happen. Right. I mean, I, I do think that we criminalize way too much in this society and, and that we've, you know, basically said like, oh, homelessness, um, you know, drug abuse, um, you know, all sorts of problems, we'll just send the cops to deal with it. Um, right. and, and, you know, we've seen, you know, we've seen the results of that. Um, and, you know, also too, like, again, it gets to a, to a question of how much deeper do you want to go? But I think the, the, the outstanding sort of issue before us is like, how deep do we want to take this? You know, and we, we talked about this before because reforming the police is a major step. And I don't want to say that that would not be meaningful, right? I don't want to suggest that we shouldn't do that or that it's somehow not important. But I think like what, when you're, what you're really going to see change, like substantial change in this country is dealing with, you know, systemic racism, right? Because we've in some ways dealt with like the legal aspect of discrimination, right? Like laws that openly discriminate. You know, right. that is is has been and, and uh, you know, needs to continue to be. But like that's sort of been addressed. But the you know, what everyone's protesting right now is like, yes, like there are laws that say that schools shouldn't be segregated. But de facto, like in many cities, they are right. You know, people should have access to affordable housing. People should be able to, you know, to live in better neighborhoods. That doesn't happen. Right. Like people should be treated based on, you know, based more on like merit and achievement given second chances, you know, all those sorts of things. And these things like these things don't happen. Right. Even though there are laws ostensibly about them, these things still don't happen. And like that's I think so much of what what protest like that's part of what these protests are. And it's also, I think, something deeper, too. Right. Like this notion that. You know, there, there is a huge part of America's population, a huge part of America's history that's been ignored, uh, that's been, you know, degraded, that's been dismissed. And we should not do that, right? I mean, we never should have. Um, but, you know, we need to, we need to try to address those things moving forward. And so, I mean, I think that, like, that's the question of depth, right? Like what always has plagued Ukraine and it's sort of long, that long held mental, you know, desire, uh, you know, that formulation of itself as a European country is like that underlying problem of corruption. You know, here, like what's going to stop this movement now from moving forward, I think is going to be the, the hesitancy of so many, you know, I think white people in this country to go all the way, you know, to go all the way to the core. And admit that, like, this country was never as special as we were told it was or think it was, right? That, like, this was a country that was that was built on, like, stolen land and built by unfree labor, you know, built on human suffering and misery. 
I don't know how many people are ready to go that far, right? Because it is, you know, that's, I don't want to say like it's difficult to admit because, you know, so many, um, so many black people in this country have to, you know, see that every day. But, you know, will, will others see it that same way? You know, I don't know. And will we go all the way to the core of the, of the root problem? You know, I don't know. Um, cause you know, as you said, Andrew, like we're tearing down Confederate statues. We want to rename military bases. You know, that's, that's all good. You know, I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but if that's it, right? Like that hasn't, that hasn't solved the root yeah. problem. Yeah. It's only, I'm... it's only a step towards getting there. Um, and, you know, so I guess like that's, you know, that's the main challenge now, because I do think now we have this idea in our head about what about I don't want to say like what race relations should be. But I think more Americans now, because of these protests, have an idea of what the current state of race relations in this country and how black Americans are treated. I think they have a better idea of what that means. Right. So that that's the shift that's happened. What they do with that knowledge you know, I don't know. Um, but, you know, that's where we are. That's today's episode in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely uh, interesting to watch, and we will continue watching it. <laughs> yeah, and certainly. Seeing how it and... develops, so... Um, yeah, I know. I, mean, we're, we're, I mean, we're going to keep watching. We're going to keep paying attention. And, you know, hopefully we'll have, uh, you know, even... I, I shouldn't, I don't know if like exciting is the right word, but I mean, monumental. I mean, hopefully we'll have even, you know, more monumental things to talk about, uh, next time. Um, you know, it, it might be worth, uh, returning to, to Russia and the United States, uh, because I do think that, um, you know, coronavirus is still a major issue, uh, in, in both countries. Um, you know, there's, there's an election coming up here in the United States. I think Putin, I'm going to have to double check, but I think that they're going to, move ahead with the vote on changing the constitution uh so you know the political future of both countries is very much up in the air um and so you know we look forward to, to having you listen <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,